You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. to begin our time together today, and I want to begin ultimately this new series that we are beginning today by just proposing or presenting to you a few questions. First question I want to ask us is, why do you believe in God? Yet you don't believe in the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy. Why do you believe in a God that you can't physically touch, that you can't see with your physical eyes? Why do you believe in him? If you can't scientifically prove that he is real, that he is there, that he is present with you every day, why do you believe in him but yet not believe in other things that you cannot see? We believe in a God that has existed forever, who created us and is leading all of his creation toward his desired purposes. Are we crazy as Christians for believing in this reality? Many call us crazy. Many say the things that we believe are crazy. They say that they're unbelievable. They can't imagine that someone would actually believe that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, was crucified on a Roman cross, and then got out of the grave. Christians have been mocked for this. We believe that the Bible is not simply a collection of man-made writings, but it is actually inspired by God himself, creator of the entire universe. To some, it's foolishness. Christians are mocked oftentimes. There are some who consider themselves to be too intellectual, too too smart to actually believe in something that sounds like a fairy tale to them. Excuse me. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by AMP. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Tunach. We're starting a series called Why Am I a Christian? Where we're not focusing as much on just what we believe, but specifically, why do we believe it? Why do we believe it to be true? Why do we consider the truths of Scripture to actually be from God? And we won't be able to answer all of these questions today, but we will get to them as our series continues on. I want to ask you to make sure that you stick with us today because the the sermons will build on each other, especially the first three sermons will build. So make sure that you stay with us, if at all possible. If you can, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I'm not going to read it quite yet, but if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and and you can turn there. But a couple quick things before we, before we get to that scripture. Uh, the first one is, and this is apart from the series, I wasn't able to be here with you all last weekend on MLK weekend. If I was here, I would have been able to make this announcement there, but I want to go ahead and do it now briefly while you're turning to First Peter. Uh, I will be doing a, what they call a discipleship weekend at Church of the Apostles. It sits on Taylor Street, at the corner of Taylor and, and Bull Street. They're asking me to come and speak on racial unity uh, within the church. This is something that I speak on a good bit, but specifically this one, I'll actually be able to unpack it more. Is they're giving me three sessions of, of Friday evening and two on that Saturday morning. This is going to be February 7th through February 8th. So I don't have the exact times now. I should have on my Sunday of next week. February 7th, February 8th, there'll be one session Friday evening, two sessions Saturday morning. I'm excited about being able to more thoroughly unpack 
uh, a lot of what goes into that. I'll have more things like specific times, and I think childcare will be provided as well, but I'll be able to provide that information for you. Uh, so feel free to make a note of that if you're interested in attending. Uh, also, before we get into the scripture today, you can something we're doing for this series that we don't always do, but we've done a couple times before. Since we're going to be answering quite a few questions about the existence of God, why we believe in God, we want to give you an opportunity to ask questions, and we'll use the fifth Sunday in this series to answer questions that you ask from the Bible. So if you have any question as we're going through it today, you can just text it in, 91011. You just text two notch followed by the question. Here's an example of a way you might want to do that. So if you do have any specific questions, uh, feel free to, to send those in. We would love to be able to, to get to those. All right, so theme verse for our sermon series today, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, reads, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He's saying that as Christians, we should, we should be prepared to respond to questions that people might have for why do you believe what you believe? Those are difficult questions, so we wanted to take five weeks and do this series about why I'm a Christian to equip the church to be able to respond to questions like those. But also, if your faith walk is anything like mine, at sometimes, even if you're a Christian, maybe you have doubts. Maybe even as a Christian, sometimes maybe you hear someone propose a question or, or an argument maybe around you in our world today, and you think, hey, I don't know how to answer that question, and maybe it causes you to stumble a little bit in your faith. If that's you, I believe this series will be of great use to you and be very helpful to you. So again, I want to invite you to stick with us throughout the entire series. I don't know if they still do this in school, but I remember being in sixth grade, I learned something called the scientific method. The scientific method. Basically, it starts with a hypothesis. I believe blank is true. And then you do a series of experiments and observations to determine whether or not you have enough evidence to prove that this thing is true. And then if you can prove it to be true, then you can trust it. And if you can't prove it to be true, then, well, you probably can't trust that it's actually true. So what has happened oftentimes for us, even as Christians, is that we've applied the principles of the scientific method to how we determine whether or not God is actually who he says he is and who he claims to be. So basically we say, okay, well, if I can experiment with it, if I can physically touch it, if I can observe it, then, okay, then I can prove that God is true. If not, then I don't really have any reason to believe that God is true because I can't prove it. And so we've used this method. There's a couple issues that I have with this thought process as we start talking about how do we know, how do we believe, how do we know whether or not we should believe that God is actually true. The first one is the statement that Something is only true if I can prove it doesn't pass its own test. Let me try to explain a little bit. The statement we should only believe what can be tested and be proven cannot be tested and be proven. So the statement that says I can only believe something that can be tested and proven by that statement means you can't believe that very statement itself because it cannot be tested and proven. That's number one. Also, I'll be quoting quite a few scholars, pastors, and even some atheists today in the sermon and throughout this this sermon series. Tim Keller uh, is someone that I personally have learned a lot from when it comes to apologetics and understand how to defend our faith. He has a quote here that I find to be extremely helpful. He's a pastor in New York. He says that he... And before this, he admits that while we can prove quite a few things, 
He says, we cannot prove what we believe about justice and human rights or that all people are equal in dignity and worth or what we think is good and evil human behavior. If we use the same standard of evidence that many secular people use to reject belief in God, no one would be able to justify much of anything. So somebody comes up to you, let's say a guy comes up to you and says, hey, so why do you believe in God and not the Easter Bunny? When you can't prove him, just like you can't prove the Easter Bunny. Here's what you do. First step, punch him in the face. And then, and then when he gets upset and says that you shouldn't do that, say, well, I don't live my life based on things that I can't prove, and I can't prove that it's wrong to punch you in the face. So why do you believe it's wrong for me to punch you, but you don't believe in the Easter Bunny yourself? What's my point? In, in philosophy, basically no one follows this line of reasoning anymore. No one truly believes, well, I can only put my faith in something or trust in something if I can prove it with evidence. And yet, at the same time, many people who are secular, who are anti-faith, fall into this thinking, assuming that religious people live by blind faith, while secular people and non-believers are grounding their position in evidence and reason. There's a perception that those who are religious, we just live off of blind faith and we have no reason to believe what we believe. But people who are secular only really believe things based on logic and reason, which is actually not the case because everyone believes deeply in things that they cannot prove. Human rights, the fact that all are worthy of dignity, the fact that it is wrong for you to inflict violence on someone else, you can't scientifically prove that to be the case, yet we all hold to many of those standards. Tim Keller has another quote I find to be very helpful. He says, reason is a crucial and irreplaceable way to help us with competing beliefs. But it is impossible to claim that we should believe only what is proven and that, therefore, since religion can't be proven, we shouldn't embrace it. All of us have things we believe, including things we would sacrifice and even die for, that cannot be proven. We believe them on a combination of rational, experiential, and social grounds. But since these beliefs cannot be proven, does that mean we are not to hold to them or that we can't know them to be true? We should, therefore, stop demanding that belief in God meet a standard of universally acknowledged proof when we don't apply that to the other commitments on which we base our lives. Here's my point. Everyone uses faith and reason. Everybody who's ever existed. The most intellectual, scholarly person that you've ever met lives their life based off of faith and reason. It's not that secular people use sound reason and only believe things that they can prove while religious people practice blind faith. Everyone lives by faith in something. There's a gentleman named Neil, and I can't pronounce his last name. He's a theoretical chemist, studied at Princeton, University of California, Berkeley, Yale, and Duke. So he's smarter than probably all of us in the room, maybe except for Matt Harvey. I shouldn't have said that joke. <laughs> shouldn't have said it. I debated about whether I was going to say it. I shouldn't have done it. Uh, here's what he says. He's referring to arguments for God's existence. He's saying arguments for God's existence should not be viewed as proofs of God, but as evidence for God. Why? Because proof is generally relegated to the field of mathematics. Speaking as a professional scientist myself, I can attest that scientists rarely demand proof that theories are true. Instead, scientists and those in many other fields, such as economics, medicine, and archaeology, seek the best explanation for the evidence that they have. When considering arguments for God's existence, we should not demand proof, but should instead ask ourselves which worldview is the best explanation of the evidence provided. Which worldview is the best explanation of the evidence provided? 
as far as I can tell, the Bible never actually goes out of its way to try to prove with scientific data that God exists. It never goes out of its way to do that. That's not a goal of the Bible. And as we'll get to, we'll go to Romans chapter 1 in just a couple seconds. We get a bit of an explanation of what's going on beneath the surface when people give all the arguments that they give for why God can't exist or why God does not exist. I want to emphasize a couple different things that Paul says in Romans chapter 1. The first point is going to be in verses 16 through 18. So let me read, let me read those. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteous are those who have been made new in Christ, are being transformed more and more into the image of God. Paul refers to them as the righteous, and they will live by faith in the truth that God gives. They'll live by this faith. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now check out what we do because of our unrighteousness. He says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Did you notice the distinction that he makes? He doesn't make a distinction between faith and reason. He makes a distinction between faith in the truth and a suppression of the truth. He says the two things that are at odds with one another, the two things that are in opposition are not faith and reason. It's faith and suppression of the truth that we actually already know. One of the points of emphasis from Romans chapter 1 is we don't believe because we suppress the truth. We don't believe because we suppress the truth. Suppressing the truth isn't the same as being ignorant. Suppressing the truth is when deep down you know it's true, but you keep yourself from acknowledging it. It's when you don't know, but you know. It's when you don't, you don't know, but, but deep down, you know. You know what's true. Suppression is the actual issue. Now, we'll get to that later. We'll get to more into it later, but I want to say at first that suppression of the truth is an actual heart-level issue that is underneath many of the arguments that people make against the existence of of God. And again, I'll try to break that down a little bit, but before I do that, let's get to verse 19 and 20. I want to show the second thing I want to emphasize from this passage from Paul. And the second thing I want to emphasize is God has given us evidence about his existence through his creation. God has given us evidence about his existence through his creation. This is the point that Paul makes in verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. He says what can be known about God, his eternal power, his divine nature, God has already shown us these things in his creation. That Greek word therefore made plain can be translated made evident. That God has given us evidence about his existence through his creation. He's put the evidence out there. And remember, that is what we need if we're going to make an informed decision. What we need to make decisions and base our lives off of things is not scientific proof, but rather evidence that best explains the world around us. We look at evidence and ask which theory or worldview makes the most sense. He's saying that even though we can't see God with our, with our physical eyes, that we can't touch him with our physical hands, he's given us evidence to know 
that he exists. So in light of what Paul is saying right here, many theologians, many philosophers, who Christian philosophers have, have come up with these different defenses and reasons and evidences and arguments, I would say, for why we believe that Christ is who he says he is, and, and, and more specifically, that God exists. So I'm going to name a few different arguments and use some very scientific names so you think I'm smart when I'm saying them and you can trust what I say. And then we'll show how Paul is right in saying that God has revealed himself and made himself evident through his creation. The first argument that I want to make is the cosmological argument. The cosmological <laughs> argument. Guys, the cosmological argument is basically another way of saying an argument from something rather than nothing. So the cosmological argument goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. The cosmological argument goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. For example, this screen right here behind me. If it were to fall, your first initial thought, you would know something happened that made it fall. You might be looking around like, what in the world made that thing fall? Because we all know that if it's just sitting there and no outside force acts on it, it's going to continue to sit there. It's going to continue to be the way that it is. It's not going to move. It's not going to fall without something acting on it. Simple point. The same is true for the universe. And scientists even back this up, that before there was nothing and then there was something, like it doesn't make sense to go from, well, there was nothing and then one day there was something without a force that acts on the nothing and makes it something. It's the only thing that actually makes sense. And the first law of thermodynamics, more smart talk, the first law of thermodynamics tells us that in a closed system, like the universe, the amount of matter and energy is constant, always the same. That in a closed system, like the universe, the amount of matter and energy, now it may change form, it may go back and forth, it stays the same. It's constant. That means, then, based on the first law of thermodynamics, that the amount of matter and energy that is currently in the universe is the amount of matter and energy that was in the universe when it began. So if you believe in the theory of the Big Bang, as many secular people do, you have to start asking questions like, okay, but where did that come from? All the matter, all the energy that is there had to have a source, had to have an origin, because you cannot create matter and you cannot create energy on its own. Matter and energy can go back and forth, but they cannot begin, no one can create matter. We can just change energy and change matter back and forth. This stuff doesn't happen unless it's acted on by a force. Nothingness can't just explode. It had to get there at some point, and if that is true, something or someone had to put it, put it there. Richard Dawkins is a, a famous atheist, writes a lot of books, uh, has spoken in different places. In his book, God Delusion, he actually admits that there's a problem with science explaining how everything came to be. Here's what he said. Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or ultimate origins. And cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. Here's what he's saying. In his, per his, in his point of view, he can see how Darwin is explaining the way things are happening here as far as life on Earth. He's saying, but we don't have any explanation actually for how everything actually got here. We're still waiting on someone to tell us that. I'll tell you what that sounds like to me. Blind faith. Blind faith. He has no evidence to support what he is saying whatsoever. No one has ever explained it. And so he says, we're just waiting on someone to 
explain it. He admits they have no idea where life itself, where materials that produce life came from. He's saying we can't explain how everything came to be here because it's evident that nothing times nobody can't equal everything. It can't. But don't worry, he says in the book, one day we'll, we'll find it. Textbook example of a leap of blind faith. It's like he's suppressing the truth about the existence of God. Because as Paul says in verse 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Since the universe had to come from something, God has made it plain and evident to us that he exists. He's made it plain to us and we all can see it. The next extremely smart point that I want to make is the teleological argument. Teleological argument. Also called an argument for design. Let me explain how this argument works. That the world that we live in has a meticulous design. Anything with a design is made by a designer. Therefore, the universe has a designer. Read those again. The world has a meticulous design. Anything with a design is made by a designer. Therefore, the universe has a designer. The word teleos means purpose. Our creation appears to be very very fine-tuned for a purpose. Life itself on this planet only exists because there are so many measurements that if they were off just by a hair, life would not be able to exist. Let me give you some facts about the universe and your atmosphere that you might not know. So that your atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.5% argon, about 0.03 or 0.04% carbon dioxide. If some of those levels are slightly off, we could not exist, or life could not exist as we know it. If the level of oxygen dropped by 6%, we would all suffocate. If it rose by 4%, our planet would erupt into a giant fireball, and we all would die. Or if CO2 were just a little higher, let's say about 3%, or just a little bit lower, let's say 0.01%, then the earth would either become an oven or have no atmosphere at all, and we'd all die. Or this one. Water is the only molecule that in its solid state is more dense than it is less dense, excuse me, than its liquid state. So basically, ice floats. If that was not true about water, then, the, then ice would sink to the bottom of the ocean, and the ocean would freeze from the bottom up, and we'd all die. Or the distance of the earth from the sun. If we were 2% closer to the sun, the planet would be too hot for water to exist and we'd all die. And then there's a tilt of the earth, which is an ideal 23.5 degrees, which we've learned is the perfect for temperatures and tides and things like that. What you maybe have never thought about is if the earth was not tilted, the temperatures would be extreme and we'd all die, at least the humans. We've also learned that if Jupiter wasn't the size that it was and wasn't in the orbit that it's currently in, astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 times the number of asteroid strikes right here on the Earth, and we'd all die. So the telescopes, anytime, so the telescope shows us that God exists, that God has revealed himself through his creation, but the microscope does the same thing. Even the most basic DNA strands are incredibly complex, enough so that Francis Collins, who's the head of the Human Genome Project, had this to say. How could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance of a DNA strand? 
DNA with its phosphate sugar backbone and intricately arranged organic bases stacked neatly on top of one another and paired together at each rung of the twisted double helix seems an utterly improbable molecule to have just happened, especially since DNA seems to possess no intrinsic means of copying itself. Francis Collins. One philosopher said it's like thinking an explosion in an ink factory would lead to inadvertently produce, sorry, inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. We would never believe that to be the case. We would never accept that chance would cause that to happen. The late Stephen Hawking, he was a theoretical physicist, a cosmologist, the author of, the author of many books, the director of research at the Center for the- Theoretical Cosmology at the University of Cambridge, said in one of his later books, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many precise ratios, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton and the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely tuned to make possible the development of life. Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time, a confessing atheist, said this. You can find a lot more about this argument. You might want to write this down, reasonablefaith.org has a video that's called The Fine-Tuning of the Universe that explains all this way faster than I could. I think it's only about six minutes long. It's definitely worth the watch if you're interested in learning more about that. But the universe and our world obviously have been meticulously designed, which means they have a designer, which just goes to show what Paul says in verses 19 and 20 are true. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has made it plain that he exists. It is evident. We can all see that he exists. There's only one more argument that I wanted to present to you today. It is the moral argument. It is the moral argument. Two points about just to explain that. There is a universal moral law, and if there is a universal moral law, there is a moral law giver. If there is a universal moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. So Paul makes a point in, in Romans chapter 2 that we have the law written on our hearts. Even though it, might, it, it differs between different people, what we consider to be universal law, we all believe that there are laws that should be followed. We all live our lives to some degree based off of the moral laws that we consider to be most important. And I'm saying it's hardwired into us. I'm saying you couldn't change this about yourself no matter how hard you tried. You wouldn't be able to shake it. This is why we collectively lost our minds at the end of Avengers Infinity War. Did we not? I sat in the back and I was like, I'm sitting here until y'all bring Black Panther back. I don't care how long it's going to take. I saw people posting on Facebook like, yo, I need some therapy because I can't, the snap can't just be the snap and that be the end of it because we crave justice. We can't have a story end without justice. It's what we desire. We need it because we all ascribe to a moral law that justice must win in the end because it's been written on our hearts, Paul says. There are things that you know and believe deeply that no one should ever do. Human trafficking, harming little children who have done nothing wrong to you or others. There are certain laws that you know everyone should obey, no matter their creed, no matter where they're from, no matter where they live. There are certain things that you would say definitively, no one should ever do this. No one should ever do this specific thing. 
if there is not a God who sits above all of creation, then you cannot believe in an objective universal moral law. Not a single one of them. If we're all just basically the, the effects of, of, a, of, a, of a circumstance, of just by chance we're a collection of molecules and we're a collection of atoms, then how can anyone possibly say that there's actually a moral law or moral laws that everyone who exists should, should obey? The only way that there can possibly be a moral law, even one that everyone in the world should obey, is if there is a moral law giver that sits above everyone else. That's the only way you can hold to that truth. You can't say, well, we're all just a collection of atoms, but this collection of atoms over here can't do this thing. Only if there is one who sits supreme, only if there is a God who reigns over all, can one objectively say that there is a moral law. There are moral things that some of us should never do. If there is no God, then we're all just here by chance with no actual real objective, with no design, with no purpose, with no meaning then the love that you have in your heart for people that you care about, it's just chemicals. It's just chemicals in your brain. It's just hormones. There's nothing deeper, nothing deeper about it. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing actually spiritually satisfying to your soul or about being able to connect with loved ones. It's just a different combination of chemicals that move back and forth in your brain. We see from this moral argument, I believe it makes it clear that our problem is what Paul says it is in verse 18. Who by their unrighteousness... Suppress the truth. That God has revealed himself to us. He has made it evident that he exists, but we suppress the truth. I would say the suppressing of truth is the only, one, only way one can actually arrive at the conclusion that the love that they have for their loved ones is actually just chemicals moving back and forth in their brain. Deep down, we all know we're more than just a collection of molecules and atoms and cells. We all know. Near the end of World War II, there was a, a consecration camp. This was the first camp that the Allied forces came to. It was in Germany, a town I can't pronounce. I think it's Odruf or something like that. The Nazis tried to get rid of any evidence of the concentration camps once the war was over, but the Allied soldiers got here before they could do it. Uh, the American GIs witnessed hundreds of dead bodies there. It was the first concentration camp that they witnessed. General Patton arrived and just vomited upon witnessing the scene. The next day, General Patton went to the governor of that city and his wife, brought them to it, and had them and all remaining citizens in the area give a burial and a funeral for all the bodies that were there. Later on, General Patton got, got word that that governor and his wife had hung themselves. And there was a note that said, we didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. They're saying we didn't know everything that was going on in, in, this, in our city at this time, but we knew, but we knew. Suppressing the truth. It's something that we do when we feel like we can't accept the reality. When we feel like the reality will cost us too much, it's too difficult, it's too hard. I don't want to live with the implications of this reality, so I'm going to suppress it. If I can tell a story on a more personal note, this was actually the thing that caused me to start going to see a counselor a few years ago. So when my boys were born in 2013, I believe it was 2013, uh, for, for those of you who know our family story, without going into all of it, we had a lot of medical complications with, with one of our children. Uh, my wife at that time, she 
had a lot of just postpartum uh, depression, which I think was, was, was really severe at the time. And I remember dealing with all the medical issues with my son and then seeing how all of it was, was affecting my wife. I remember just telling myself, just get through it. Just get through it one day at a time. Don't think about it. Just get through it. I was suppressing the pain that I was feeling. I was pushing it down. I was acting like it wasn't there. I wasn't allowing myself to actually deal with it. Well, then a few years later, my wife gets pregnant again. And one thing I started noticing was, even though at that point my boys were a few years old, I loved spending time with them. It was, it, it was amazing. I had dread about having another child because of all the grief that I had suppressed and not really dealt with. Ended up going to see a counselor about it. And he had me just like, I used to write poetry. Like He had me like write a poem about that time in my life just to try to get some, just to try to make myself kind of relive it and go through it instead of just suppressing it. And I started saying things about myself in that poem that I didn't even know were true. About the amount of pain that I felt at that point, I didn't even know it was true. It, it was like I, I was hurting deeply at that time, but my mindset was just continue on. Because that was the same year Midtown Tunash got started. I was bivocational at the time. I was like, no, you just got to keep going. You just got to keep pushing. You just got to continue on. And I suppressed the truth at that time. It's like I knew how difficult it was for me. I knew how painful it was, but I didn't know. But I didn't know. If you're hearing this and you're on the fence about God or you just don't believe in him, or if you're a Christian and there are some things that you know that God wants you to do or you know to be true about God, but you don't want them to be true, I want to encourage and challenge you at the same time that even though you may think you don't know, you know. You know that he's true. You don't know, but deep down, you know. Deep down, you are aware. We all suppress the truth about God in some way. I'm saying even the most mature Christian in some way suppresses the truth about God because the reality of who he is is difficult for us. Because God being God means a few things that we don't like. He owns you. You belong to him. He created everything, even you. He has creator's rights over you, over your time, over your thought life, over your body, over everything. We want to suppress that truth. We don't want to deal with it. It means another thing. You're not in control of anything. You're not in control of anything. He's in control. If he's God, if he made the universe, he's the one that is in control. We don't want to deal with that reality, so we suppress the truth. And we come up with things like, well, you can't prove that God exists, so how do you know that he actually exists? No, you know. You know that he exists. You don't want to know. You may have at this point convinced yourself that you don't know, but deep down, you know. And this is why, and you can tell, and this is why it gets me every time people try to talk about Christians or people who have faith, like we're crazy because we, we have faith. You ever heard somebody who doesn't believe in God and claims to be a super intellectual or whatever, and they say things like, well, I can't believe in a God who's like this. I can't believe in a God who's like this. Here's what they're saying. I'm not basing whether or not I believe God to be true off any type of facts or any type of evidence like that. I'm just basing it on my preferences. So I'm going to choose whether or not I accept something to be true or not based on whether or not I like it. Is what they're saying. What's that? Suppressing the truth. That's saying I have no interest in letting truth actually dictate what I believe and what I don't believe. I'm going to let my feelings and my preferences determine for me what I believe and what I do not believe. We suppress the truth because of our unrighteousness, Paul says. We suppress the truth because we aren't ready to deal with the difficult realities of the truth. The German governor wasn't ready to deal with the difficult realities that people were being treated the way that they were. 
He wasn't ready to deal with the difficult reality of, of how much, I wasn't ready to deal with the difficult reality of how much I was actually suffering at that time. Many people in our world aren't ready to deal with the difficult reality of the existence of God who reigns supreme, to whom we must all answer to. There's an atheist philosopher. I want to read a quote to, to you from him. His name is Thomas, I think, Nagel from uh, New York University. He says this in his book, The Last Word. He says, and this is so telling, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and natural hope that I'm right in my belief. Sorry, let me say it again. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I'm curious whether there's anyone who could genuinely be indifferent as to whether there is a God. This is what he says. He says, I don't think anyone can actually be indifferent about it. No, we're all biased, he's saying. We're all biased to want to suppress the truth in some way because there are things about God that bother us and that we don't like. I don't want there to be a God because then I'll have to change the way that I live and the way that I act. He's saying, I can't imagine anybody actually being objective about this subject. That is what Paul is saying, that we're not objective, that in our unrighteousness we suppress the truth. I'm glad that there was a philosopher who was willing to say it. He's saying, if there is a God, I'm not objective when I consider that. I'm not objective at all. He's saying he's, he's losing control of his life if there's an actual God, and he doesn't want to accept that. So in conclusion, for those of us that are Christians, we must bear in mind that your friend who might be an atheist or just not a, not a believer in God, the arguments that they are bringing before you is not actually the problem. You see that? Nobody became a Christian because you're putting wrong in an argument, right? That's not how it works. The issue is a suppression of the truth because of they don't desire for God to actually be real. When God has revealed himself to us, so in our, in our desire to, to love them well, to serve them well, we must think well about how do we help them to no longer suppress what they already know deep down to be true. The thing that they don't know, but they know. My thoughts on that are let us be a people and a family that consistently shows others how good our God is. Let us be a people, let us be a family that consistently shows others how good our God is. Tell them about his compassion and mercy and how close he was to outcasts when he walked this earth and those who were looked down on. Tell them about his love that caused him to leave heaven to come to live a perfectly righteous life in our place to die for people who aren't righteous like us. Tell them about his forgiveness and his grace and how he always continues to love his people no matter how many times we fail and sin against him. Tell them about the power of God that he conquered death and promises eternal life to all who trust him and continue to show off his love to them. And here's why that's important. Because if they're going to, if they're going to begin to no longer suppress the truth, they have to come to an acknowledgement of the reality. They have to be freed and have their minds liberated to the truth and the reality that actually God being God is a good thing. That the way to stop suppressing the truth is if they come to realize that actually God being God, that reality is actually better than if he's not God. And we must be a people that show off how good he is in our words and how we love people. That we communicate a God that is so loving that, that, that they might say, no, I want this God to exist, and thus I am able to accept him. Because they can actually come to see 
that God, as he truly is, and as we see God as he truly is, we accept him because we know that accepting him means we see more beauty than difficulty, more peace than pain, more joy than suffering. We understand that God actually always gives to us more than he asks of us. We must help others see through the way that we love each other, through the way that we love our world, and through the way that we communicate who he is, that God being God is actually the best thing for everyone who has ever lived. Let us portray who our God is. Let's not be overly caught up in arguments and disagreements and things like that. Some of those arguments are, and some of those defenses and evidences are good to explain, and I think they're helpful, but ultimately we must realize that people aren't objective about who God is, that everyone is biased because of what God existing would actually cause us. For those of us who are afraid or, or, don't, or want to suppress the reality about God because we want to be in control over our lives, we must see that it's actually better for us if God is in control of our lives. For those of us who want to suppress the truth about God that we belong to him and he owns us, we need to continue to be reminded of the truth that that's actually what's best for us if we let him steer and direct us and lead us. That is actually what is best. That that's not a truth that needs to be suppressed. It's a truth that needs to be celebrated. That we need to sing songs about it. That we need to come together continually and rejoice about the goodness of our God. May we portray our God as such, because accepting him means we always receive more from him than he asks us to give to him. Every Sunday, as we come together, we try to partake in communion together. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of him. Communion, the broken bread which represents his body when he was crucified for us, the the juice that represents his blood that was shared for us is a reminder that, no, he's good. He's good. He's the king that comes and dies for his people. He is worthy of worshiping. It is good that he exists, that he is who he says that he is. So today as we partake in communion together, let us remember that even though some aspects of who he is are difficult for us and we may want to suppress them, ultimately it is the best news that God is real, that he exists, that he is with us. And let us remember that as we approach the table today. I'll pray for us. And then we'll partake in communion together. Father, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being unchanging. Father, even at times when we want to suppress the knowledge that we have about you, when we don't want to believe the things that deep down we know to be true. Father, help any of us in the room today that maybe during the time of this sermon came to realize different things about you that we have a tendency to suppress. Father, help us to remember and believe and trust you at your word that you are good, that you work all things together for the good of those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Father, help us to see you clearly. Help us to to not be blinded by the unrighteousness in our hearts that causes us to believe that we need to suppress the knowledge that we have about you. Help us to see every one of your attributes as something to be celebrated, something worth rejoicing over and not something that we need to suppress. Father, make us a people who are those that live by faith instead of suppressing the truth. That we know who you are, we remember who you are, we love who you are, and we're excited about helping others to see you as well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.